Okay, we are going to be reading from 1 Peter this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, um, just put up your hand. Our Frontlines team is around here walking around, and they'll pass you a Bible. Um, And if you don't have a Bible at home, you can take this Bible home as a gift from us. So if everyone wants to turn to 1 Peter, this is where we'll be starting today. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Matt. I am one of the leaders and pastors of Church of the City. It is my joy and privilege uh, to be able to open up 1 Peter for us this morning. We're just doing those two verses, so we're not going too far. Uh, And so we will be in the first uh, couple of verses. Well, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, um, we are so happy that you're here. And this has been some of my experience with those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you know the grind of being a follower of Jesus. Right? You know it's tough. You know it's difficult. You know that there are seasons where, you know what? If you're honest, it would just feel a lot better to not follow Jesus. Right? We know this. Uh, For some of us, that's been experiences that we've had of suffering. Uh, That's been experiences that we've had of um, stories of people that we're in relationship with who are in suffering. And so we've just said, you know what, it might be easier at this point not to follow Jesus. For others of us who are not followers of Jesus, maybe you say, I'm not following Jesus because of suffering that I see in the world. Both the suffering that I've experienced or the suffering that I've seen in other people around me in my life. And the book of 1 Peter, the letter really of 1 Peter, is going to be an offering of opening up for us how do we find hope in the midst of suffering. Another couple of things that I've recognized about those who are followers of Jesus and then those who are not followers of Jesus is those who are followers of Jesus, we find it very easy to come up with reasons for why God won't use us. Right? For some of us, it's our background, it's our history, it's the level of education we have, it's the gifts that we feel like we have or the ones that we don't. And then for those that are not followers of Jesus, many of us are too easy at coming up with reasons for why God doesn't exist. We just push it away. And again, it might be background, education, maybe you say, well, I'm educated so I don't believe in God, whatever that might be. Wherever you are today, hear this. The letter of 1 Peter is for you. Peter wants you to hear what he had written all those years ago to a group of people, a group of people from different backgrounds, as we're going to see today. And he wants them all to understand that there is hope in the gospel. There is hope in the good news of Jesus. And so no matter who you are, what your background is, what your education level is, the experiences that you've had, this is for all of us to hear. So before we jump in, why don't we take a moment to quiet ourselves, prepare our hearts. Maybe your heart is heavy about something this morning. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's your heart's heavy. You saw the end game last night. You went to the 1030 show, and so you've been up really long. (laughs) It might be not the case. Whatever it is, let's lean in. Let's figure out where we're at before we keep going.
So Jesus, we thank you that no matter the background, no matter our education level, no matter our histories, no matter our experiences, God, maybe for some of us, it's a, it's a coat of shame that we wear, a label. God, I thank you that you have news, a good news for every single person here. And so I pray that you would break open our hearts. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that we'd recognize the great work of Jesus on our behalf and how this changes our experiences. We love you in your name. Amen. Well, one thing you will probably never hear somebody say is, I really miss dial-up internet. I really miss dial-up internet. Now, those of us that are in the room, how many of you remember dial-up? Okay, okay, so there's a good group, but there's also those that's in this room that are like, dial-up, what is dial-up? Like, that is probably one of the most uh, beautiful changes that we've seen in technology, right? From dial-up internet to internet is like available wherever. Now, obviously that does have some limitations and and costs to it, but nobody is ever going to say, man, I really miss dial-up. Probably what people are also not going to say is I really miss dial-up because uh, when people tried to call me, they couldn't reach me because of my dial-up internet. Do any of you remember that? That when, when you'd try to get a call, uh, you couldn't actually receive it? Some of us in the room are like, what? That actually was the case? Yes, when you had internet and it was dial-up, it took up your phone line, and so you couldn't receive calls. I remember we would have a schedule growing up of when we were allowed to be on the internet, or if a call was expected, it was like you cannot be online. Now, also to go in this world of technology that has changed is home phones, right? How many of us still have a home phone? All right. Okay. So we still have a couple of us with home phones, but the majority of us no longer have home phones, which means that there's an experience that many of us will grow up or begin to realize that we can't have. And that's the experience of being able to pick up one of the other phones that's in your house while somebody is on it and listen in. Right? Like, so we could probably just go around this morning and share experiences of, like, you know, we were pulling you know, some sort of trick on another family member, and it's like, yeah, you know, I've been on the phone the entire time. Or, you know, back in the, my days of um, high school and girlfriends and things, and my siblings would pick up the phone and listen in on my calls with my various girlfriends, those sorts of things. Like, many of us would be able to share stories. Now, the interesting thing about that is that when you do that, when you lean into hearing somebody's conversation and you know both ends— you can kind of figure out the context of what's going on in that relationship. You know what the person is saying. You know what the other people are responding with. Many of us will not necessarily have that same experience. And therefore, when we approach a, a letter like First Peter, oftentimes when you study the epistles or letters, it's a lot like listening in on someone's phone conversation but not being able to hear what the other people are saying. Like here what we're approaching is a letter in which Peter is writing to a group of people and we're not sitting there with the other group of people knowing specifically what is going on. And so for us, we're actually coming into an experience where Peter is writing a group of people and just sort of catching up with what Peter is saying but not knowing what's on the other side. And so what we're going to do this morning, these first two verses were introduced to a few groups of people. And so what I want to do this morning to help us as we explore the rest of the book is get some context and some understanding to what's going on on the other side of the line because it's not necessarily available for us to pick up the phone and say, what's going on here? All right? So that's what we're going to do primarily this morning. And what you have to understand also is that Peter has written a theologically rich introduction to his letter. 
We're going to explore this a little bit more, but it's theologically rich. Uh, As you'll read many of the letters in the New Testament, many of them begin with these really beautiful introductions. It's a very familiar greeting if you're familiar with any of the other letters. But this one, Peter points out some some very specific things that we ought to pay attention to if we understand the context. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Peter 1 Peter 1, as I said, we're just going to be in verses 1 and 2. Very simple. In the following weeks, we'll do a little bit more than two verses, or else we'll be here until next year in 1 Peter. But we're just going to do the two first verses this morning. Here's how it starts. As read by Andre earlier, we will explore more now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now here, Peter is identifying himself as the author, but some of us might be asking the question, maybe we're not familiar with the scriptures, who in the world is Peter? Well, here's some information about Peter. Peter was one of the first disciples of Jesus. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can go with me to Mark 1. It's also going to be on the screen, Mark 1, verses 16 to 18. Uh, We're going to jump around a little bit in the Gospels to find out a little bit more about Peter. Mark 1, verses 16 to 18 reads this, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, the is speaking of Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now you might be saying, "Um, I'm not seeing any Peter identified in these verses. And the reason is this, is Peter in these verses is actually Simon. His Hebrew name was Simeon, with Simon being the Greek form of the same name. What we'll see later on is that Jesus changes Simon's name to Cephas, or Cephas. You might see it in the scripture, C-E-P-H-A-S, which can also be translated in the Aramaic for rock, which would later be translated to Peter. Petros or Peter after he confesses Jesus as the Christ. So he goes through a bit of a name change, okay, to say the least. But he's one of the first disciples of Jesus. He's a fisherman by trade. It's part, he's part of his family business. He would have quite, been quite entrepreneurial. Um, and he leaves his business, as we see here, to follow Jesus, to follow this rabbi who invites him to follow him. The second thing we can know about this disciple, this Peter, is that he's actually the first of the disciples to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. This is what we read in Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. He said to them, that is Jesus, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Incredible. The first disciple to say, this is who you are. But also, he's the first disciple to try and restrict or reorient Jesus as Christ. We find this in only a few verses later. Look, look what happens immediately after. From that time, This is only a couple verses after what we just read. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So here we have, in one moment, Peter is acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, and then in the next moment, he's trying to rebuke Jesus and how Jesus defines himself to be the Christ and what he is going to do. In one moment, Jesus prophesies over Peter his part in the work of the future gospel ministry emphasized in rock, and then rebukes him for his Satan-like response. Imagine, eh? So he's one of the first disciples to acknowledge Jesus as Christ. He's one of the first disciples to try to restrict Jesus as Christ. He's also, he was part of Jesus' inner circle, otherwise known as the trifecta of Peter, James, and John. Uh, He was one of the disciples in this trifecta that was able to witness Jesus' transfiguration. He was invited uh, with Jesus when Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Uh, He's invited to come closer. I mean, he's, he's one of the inner circle guys with Jesus. All right? We can't forget who this man is. But then he's also, as we already saw, he's one who made some pretty serious and significant blunders uh, as a disciple of Jesus. As we saw, in addition to restricting Jesus as Christ, Peter also cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant at Jesus' arrest. And Jesus tells him to put his sword away. Remember that? When, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and Peter's like, whack! You know, he cuts an ear off and then Jesus is like, what are you doing? And takes the ear and puts it back on. It's one thing he did. Uh, he denies Jesus three times in Jesus' greatest hour of need. This was after Jesus told him that he was going to, which he said, denies. All right, this is who we're being introduced to. He also had this ongoing jealousy of the disciple John, whom we're told Jesus loved. And this, is, this happens in John 21, verses 20, verses 20 to 21. And this is after Jesus invites Peter back into the fold of ministry. Even after his denial, he's still like, yo, Jesus, like, do you love me like as many as, uh, why do you love that guy? Like, you know, he's all frustrated about that. And then we see in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 4, he had a pretty significant blunder of racism towards Gentiles and those that were uncircumcised. So this is Peter, right? First Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So who is Peter? Well, Peter is a disciple who daily struggles to walk in light of who Jesus said he was. Now, how many of us can relate? Right? We're all like, hey, you know, nice Peter. No. The scriptures want to say, how many of us in this room struggle like Peter? In our daily walk, in our daily discipleship with Jesus Christ. Peter is a disciple who daily struggle to walk in light of who Jesus says he was. So Peter, is anyone in this room who struggles in their discipleship to Jesus with a history of lows that could have sidelined his discipleship? You know, you think about that. Like, he could have said, you know what? Like, I denied Jesus in his greatest hour of need. I'm done. But Jesus came back and said to him, come on, let's go. He's any of us that are struggling in our discipleship with Jesus. Now you might say, well, why should I listen to him then? And it's what he goes on to say next. He says in this introduction, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So why should we listen to him? Well, number one, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So after his name, Peter identifies himself clearly here as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means that he was a designated ambassador commissioned by the risen Jesus after Easter to be one who would lead the church. And the key qualifier for being an apostle in the New Testament, while we see that there are apostles that are given to the church, those who are to be sent, specifically here, this is a delegation of those who are going to have the legitimacy of writing scripture. They're also those who are physical witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus as his disciples. 
So that is why Peter is saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's also one who Jesus calls the rock. Or, in other words, he's saying, you're going to be a key participant in the church's formation and growth. And a couple of proofs of this is that he's one of the key leaders in the early Jerusalem church. Some of us might be familiar, but at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, Peter gets up and just presents this incredible sermon, this contextual beauty, right? And 3,000 people profess Christ, the risen Christ, on that day. Like, those of us who have aspirations of preaching and teaching ministries, like 3,000 people, like, you know, come forward if you want to receive Jesus. (laughs) 3,000! Like, incredible, right? He's also imprisoned and released for speaking about Jesus' resurrection and actually refusing to stop about Jesus, speaking about Jesus and his re- resurrection. He was one who was regularly in Jerusalem preaching in Solomon's portico. You can read about that in Acts 5 verses 12 to 13. Peter also healed people. Uh, we read in Acts 5 verses 14 to 16 that people would be healed by simply coming under his shadow like this is a, this is a pretty prolific man in the in the formation of the early church. He's also was a key missionary in establishing the early church throughout the Mediterranean region. He leaves Jerusalem to preach the gospel to Jewish and to Gentile peoples. He receives a vision about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. You can read about that in Acts 10. And then he's also part of the Jerusalem council who approves uncircumcised believers from needing to be circumcised. So you ask the question, like, why should I listen to Peter? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ with this is his background in history. And then secondly, Peter writes about what he came to know and came to experience personally. He writes about what he came to know and experience personally. Of anyone in the scriptures, Peter is likely one of the best examples and proofs of the sanctifying work of Jesus or becoming more like Jesus. One of the greatest proofs. He was also someone who experienced the life and ministry of Jesus in the flesh and the life and ministry of the early church. Like if you're to pick a mentor for yourself, Right? Like, you had an option. I'm going to choose a mentor for myself. Peter, I would hope, you know, would be high on the docket were he to still be alive. Well, let me tell you a story about this one joke Jesus told once. Or let me tell you about some incredible things that Jesus did. Or let me tell you more about this and this and this, about the life of the early church. Like, he would have such incredible insight for us. So here in 1 Peter, we are introduced to our author, who is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is a witness, one of the first disciples, and also one who is significantly part of the growth of the early church. All right, so we have much that we can learn from him, let alone the fact that he is writing here the scriptures, God's word to us. So we have Peter, and who Peter could represent in this room, but there are still other groups that we need to look at here, and we will see who are not beyond God's reach. Second part of verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Here, secondly, let's first stop and take a note at elect exiles before going any further. Now, the word elect in the scriptures oftentimes and most times refers to those who are chosen. These are chosen individuals. We'll get a little bit into that today, but not tons into that today. We then read that they're exiles. This can be translated strangers or pilgrims. So put together, Peter's identifying these individuals as chosen pilgrims or chosen strangers. Now why strangers? Well, Peter is connecting what is a theological reality of those of us who are followers of Jesus and that our eventual home is 
is a restored earth. So the earth that we live in now is not home-like for us. You know this, if, is that if, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you believe the truths of who Jesus is, you believe in his faithfulness, you believe in what he says about you, that you're an adopted child of the Most High God, that he loves you, but your experience on this side of a restored earth is like, it doesn't feel quite right. You I mean, you love the beautiful things about Guelph, but there's also things about Guelph that you're like, ah, oh, I'm not really good about that, or I'm not really good with that. And this is the language of exile in the scriptures. Um, this is what Edmund Clowney in his commentary on the message of First. Peter talks about. He writes, the theme of Christian pilgrimage stands over and against the wandering of an unbelieving world. Christians are transients here, but they have an eternal home. They are aliens by faith because by faith they are citizens of the city of God. Some of you have been around for a while, so you know we studied the book of Daniel uh, last year in which we really focused in on the idea of exiles that our experience on earth, this side of the restored heaven, is much like that of an exile or a foreigner. This is what Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinneman write about this. Embracing the exile metaphor means we retain at least two important theological views, that God is sovereign and that God has plans for his people. According to biblical writings on exile, God uses exile to purify his people and reorient them towards his purposes. And so here Peter is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles, to the chosen pilgrims or strangers, you in the theological reality, understanding that there is going to be a return of Christ. And in the meantime, before his return, it's going to feel strange. It's going to feel out of order. That's a normal thing. We ought not to push it away, but instead embrace it as our current reality. He then goes on to identify, he's going to go all geographical on us. He writes, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now dispersion can be translated scattered. And so here what we have, I want to show you a bit of a map. So in the very top, Black Sea, you know, the very top center over to the right, we have Bithynia and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and what the reason that he's addressing all these different regions is that this is one, a letter, but then it was also to be a circulated letter. That he's writing this letter to this group of believers that are in these regions, and this letter would then be circulated around to the various Christians that are in these regions. Regions in which these are people that have come to know Jesus. And so he is writing to them to encourage them in light of the context. Many of them would be in small house churches, likely. And so he's writing them to encourage them to keep going. Now, there are two possible groups of recipients. And like anything as it relates to epistles and letters, scholars are a little bit divided on who the specific recipients are, but what I can tell you is that most of them believe that he's writing to Gentile Christian, Gentile Christians. Now you might say, well, who are Gentile Christians? Gentile Christians are people from a background that is not particularly Jewish or religious in the Judeo understanding. So these are people with, you could say, a pagan background. Maybe for some of them, it's a background. They were, they were into uh, polytheism or pantheism. They're not people that are particularly theistic in their understanding, believing in one God. And so he's writing to them. These are people that had come to know Jesus, who'd come to believe in the resurrection of Christ and the gospel. 
And so he's writing to them, since they've come to know to Christ, to encourage them in the life that they're living and going on for. Now one thing, as we're going to see as we go on throughout this book, is that the topic of suffering is particularly um, present in the book. And the reason that that is the case is because these believers, these Gentile believers, are beginning to experience ostracization and persecution because of their faith. They're living in Roman provinces. Now most scholars attest to the fact this is likely written around 62 or 63 AD, and it's just prior to when persecution really picks up against the Christians. Um, if you've studied history and Roman history in particular, you've maybe heard of uh, Nero, and Nero would lead an enormous attack upon Christians. And one of the reasons that he was attacking Christians was because of Christians' uh, exclusivity, believing in only one way to God. He didn't like that idea. He thought it was terrible. Um, other reason for why, um, why they didn't like Christians was because Christians wanted to tell others about Jesus, which was actually a shocking novelty in the world. It was supported that, no, we're going to keep sort of our inclusivity idea that you can believe in different things. Shut that down. So therefore, if you're going to be telling people that there is exclusivity, you can't be doing that. It was against sort of what was understood as this Roman culture. And so at the time that Peter is writing, he's writing from Rome, likely beginning to experience the beginnings of intense persecution in Rome, it had yet to reach this region, and so he likely knows that it's going to come. So if you think about this, he's writing this as a preparatory letter to say persecution is coming, suffering is coming, prepare yourselves, remind yourselves of who it is that you follow, Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and why you need to prepare yourself. So for any of us in this room, okay, that get a sense that Christianity might be more ostracized, there might be persecution. Now, a note I need to make about persecution. The persecution we experience is far different than the persecution that believers experience on the other side of the world and in different places. Okay? We were, uh, many of us maybe have been watching the news over the last week. We got the word last, last Sunday that there was bombings in Sri Lanka, particularly attacking churches and hotels. This is, this is not the form of persecution that we as followers of Jesus are experiencing here in Canada. And so we can't say that what we experience is the same thing. But there is a level of suffering. There is a level of marginalization. And so what we're going to see here is Peter is not encouraging these folks to, to depart. Get out of there. He's encouraging them to remain as elect exiles. That this earth... The way that it is is not your final home. We're waiting a final restoration. So don't expect that things on this side of that are going to be easy. Now, another point, just as a clarifier. If these are Gentile people, this could be anyone in the room here who doesn't have a background in any form of Christian faith. And maybe you're like, I've, I've yet to make a decision about this Jesus fellow. This letter is for you too. Or maybe you do have a background in which you have no religious background and you have come to know Jesus. This letter is for you too because that is the group of people that likely this writer is written to. There's also another group though. Uh, and some scholars would be on the other side to say these are Jewish Christians. These are people with a Jewish background that have come to know Christ. Regardless of the majority versus the minority views, likely there still are Jewish Christians present in this group. And these would be people that were raised in a particular religious view and then changed their religious view because of the resurrection of Jesus. So you might be somebody in this room who you grew up with a particular religious background. You've now been convinced of the good way of Jesus. 
The resurrection of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Whoever you are, whether you're the Peter who's struggling in your discipleship, whether you're a person without a background of any sort of faith, or whether you're a person with a faith background but not the good word of Jesus, you can hear what's going on here in Peter's letter to this group of people. Let's continue going on. Verse 2. This is where the rich theology just comes straight through to us. So he begins his sentence with to those who are elect exiles. He then gets the geographical understanding for us. He then goes on to say, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. First, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, this opens up a can, and I'm not going to go fully into the can. If you want to go into the can uh, later on into further reading, you totally can. And what, you might be like, what can are you talking about? The can that I'm talking about is that of foreknowledge and predestination. But here's what I'm about to tell you, okay? We started with the chosen elect exiles. He then goes on to say, according to the foreknowledge of God. If we look at the context of this passage in light of the rest of the scriptures— Here's what we can understand, is that God chose you long ago, and he's making you his holy people if you're a follower of Jesus. You've been chosen of God the Father from all eternity, and what he's saying is that your inclusion in the people of God is no accident, it's no afterthought, but it's God's very purpose from the very beginning. We're foreknown in and with Christ. We're objects of God's loving concern from all eternity and recipients of God's grace and love. And the language here that we need to recognize stresses the divine initiative in choosing and God's divine plan of salvation. This is what Thomas Schreiner writes in his New American Commentary on 1 Peter. When Peter said that believers are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he emphasized God's sovereignty and initiative in salvation. Believers are elect because God the Father has set his covenantal affection upon them. Now think about just for a second, we'll first start with the group that this is being written to, and then ourselves. Think about what this means for these first hearers. That as you're experiencing life in Cappadocia, in Bithynia, in Pontus, God saw you. God knows you. God has chosen you. You were not an afterthought to God. He saw you before the foundation of the world. Now, Transition to apply it to yourself. God knows you. He loves you. You're not an afterthought. He saw you and chose you before the foundation of the world. He saw the plan of Christ before the foundation of the world. He set it up the way that he has. You're not an afterthought. Incredible. To the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, he goes on, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So God has chosen and set you apart, and how does he do it in the sanctification? Through the power of the Spirit, and through the Spirit, we now receive new birth. Sanctification, as many of us are aware, as we've already talked about it in the life of Peter, as he becomes more and more like Jesus, often speaks to the progressive work. This here is speaking, however, to the sanctification that happens when someone turns their affections for the first time towards Christ. According to the foreknowledge of God, that moment when you say, yes, yes, Jesus is real, Jesus is alive, I trust in his salvation. According to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and the purpose of the Spirit's work, we then see, is twofold. It's one for obedience 
to Jesus Christ. As the sanctifying work speaks of the Spirit's work at the point of conversion, so this phrase is speaking to a person's response of obedience to Christ at conversion. So, to the elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit. So, how does somebody come to trust in Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit, according to the foreknowledge of God? But then secondly, for, third, for the obedience to Christ, and then for the sprinkling of blood. This speaks to the cleansing and the forgiveness of Jesus over your life and the reconciliation that he does between yourself and God, the atonement, what we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Now just think about this briefly. We'll explore it more when we go do some more application. Who is primarily involved in the work of salvation? Father, Holy Spirit, Son. God himself. Father, Holy Spirit, and Son. He's the primary worker in the point of someone's salvation experience. May we not forget that. How do these verses end? Well, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. For Peter, this is a closing prayer wish and a miniature version of the entire contents of the letter. The message Peter proclaimed is one of grace, and he prayed this grace would be overflowed to his readers or multiplied. For Peter, what he says here is that God's peace is going to be a result of the experience of God's grace. Now, going back to Peter, think about the life change on this point for Peter. He can now announce peace, and it comes not through the sword, but through the grace of Christ on the cross. Right? When he at one point was a person that was like, no, cut your ear off. Now he says, no, peace is not going to come through the sword. Peace is going to come because of Christ and the cross and what he has done for us. So you might say, okay, great. What's the point of these first two verses? You said earlier that this is a book for all of us. This letter is a letter for all of us. What's the point? Here's the point, and the point here that is continued through the rest of the letter. The good news of 1 Peter verses 1 to 2 is that no matter your background, experience, label, and education, no one is beyond the reach of God's love, grace, and peace. And we see this evidenced by one, those God has called and is using Look what God does in the life of Peter. Go back to his blunders. Go back to his mistakes. Go back to his background, his education. Look what God does in and through Peter's life. And then also look at what God does through these Jewish people who became followers of Jesus, Jewish Christians, but then also who came from a non-believing background who then acknowledged Christ as a Gentile background. God wants to use you regardless of your background. But then secondly, the choosing foreknowledge, as evidenced by the choosing foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the ministry of the Son. Here's what this means, is that you may be and are earmarked by God for his work and for his purposes. And this is unavoidable. How many of you in this room, let's get a show of hands, okay? And this is going to be a, a moment of vulnerability. However sensed or felt, God can't use me. 
Look around. And come on, get your hands up. Don't just put them on your knees. Get your hands up. God can't use me. The good news right here in these opening two verses is that God can and will use you. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He saw you with his foreknowledge. He chose you to follow him. The triune God, Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit accomplishes our salvation. In my view of the scriptures, therefore, what this means is that your salvation does not start with you. And God is certainly not held back by your excuses. He will bring glory to his name, glory to the Son, and it's always going to be for our good. It's up to us to simply trust him. This is what Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 10 writes. This is Paul to the Ephesian church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you keep reading in Ephesians, Paul writes, when you were dead in your trespasses, God saw you. When you're dead in your trespasses, Christ died for you. But no matter your background, Christ sees you, he saw you, he chose you, he's for you, he's not against you, and he will use you and wants to. Incredible. So, as Peter writes to these people, to remind them of their identity in Christ, to remind them who has saved them, how he has saved them, and his glorious sovereignty in the midst of whatever situation and circumstance you find yourself in. It's all for his glory and for our ultimate good. So how do we respond? We respond in, with repentance. You know, for some of us, that repentance is... Some of us have been through gospel fluency where we acknowledge that all of us are unbelievers in Jesus in some way. We don't believe the truth of what God says over us, believe the truths of what Jesus has said over us. So repentance is to say, I acknowledge my unbelief because I have believed functionally, God, that you won't use me. And I have a whole list of reasons why I believe that you won't. Repentance is to say, God, I confess that to you. Change my thinking so I believe that you will, in fact, use me. Because you promised me here that you will. And then for those who aren't followers of Jesus, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, where now he's getting at work in your mind, in your heart, according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and he's bringing you to a place of, it's time to turn. It's time to give your life to Jesus. For obedience to Jesus and through sprinkling of his blood. Cleansing, atonement accomplished, 
reconciliation. And then secondly, faith. Through grace, have faith and receive his peace. Through grace, have faith and receive his peace, which is promised to those of us who put our hope and faith in Jesus that regardless of our circumstances, he will give us his incredible peace through the power of his Holy Spirit to the praise of Jesus' glorious grace. If you would like someone to be praying with you and for you this morning, I'd invite you to come to the front. I'm excited to jump uh, into 1 Peter 3 next week. And I hope and pray that regardless of your background, your history, and your experiences, that you will hear the good news this morning. That God loves you, he's for you, he's not against you, and he will and wants to use you through his foreknowledge, through his spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for your incredible foreknowledge. We thank you today that you have chosen us, that we're not some afterthought, that we're earmarked for your good and for um, your purposes. God, I just pray that we would hear this incredibly encouraging good word this morning. And for those of us, God, who are not currently followers of you, I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would do the work of conversion right now. That we would trust you for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. That you would cleanse us. For those of us, God, who do follow you, Jesus, who are the chosen exiles, God, we acknowledge that it is really hard to follow you. There are days where we'd like not to. And so we confess that to you and we repent that we would trust you. That you don't uh, just, as soon as you choose us, you know, give us an escape plan, but you actually enable us and empower us to stay, to be steady, to be a constant presence. So God, for some of us, we're having a hard time at work right now. We're having a hard time in our marriage. We're having a hard time on our streets. God, we've obeyed the call of trying to be faithful in a neighborhood, in a community. But we're not seeing much life change. Pray, God, that you would encourage us now, that we'd acknowledge and be reminded of who does the work of salvation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We trust you. God, we thank you for the word of 1 Peter. Thank you for this letter. May it encourage us as it would have certainly encouraged its first readers and hearers. In your son's name we pray. Amen.